This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Try to put on the show. It is Danny and Gallant. Usually this time we have Brock Heward with us for Blue 42. We're going to do a little something different. Brock had some travel snafus this morning. Tough time getting to Chicago and ended up being unavailable during this window. So instead of bringing in Brock Heward, what we're going to do is is a position breakdown. Some of the unanswered questions at Seahawks training camp. That's going to be what we do here for Blue 42. Here we go. This is Blue 42. We're going to go red, right, tight, close, sprint left, GU corner, halfback, flat, on two. Ready, right. Now here's your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Blue 42! Blue 42! Oh, good morning, Danny. How are you now? I'm good. How are you, Paul? I'm doing swell. We've covered uh, Stan Kroenke's trust in Sean McVay. Mm-hmm. We've looked at whether or not practice replicates game situations. We've talked about contract. Hey, I know. Let's get to some unanswered position battles in Seattle. Uh, you ready? I'm ready. Start in the middle of things. Center. <laughs> Literally. Sounds like Kyle Fuller has the advantage on Ethan Posick right now. Posick's back at practice this week, but he's been out, had a hamstring injury, came back, re-aggravated the hamstring injury. We haven't seen him yet in a preseason game. Here's Brady Henderson, ESPN.com's beat reporter who covers the Seahawks. He was on with Jake and Stacy yesterday talking about sort of where it stands between Posick and Kyle Fuller right now. It almost sounded like like Kyle Fuller is is the clear front runner to win that job. Uh, just with the way that he was he said I'm not ruling out uh, Ethan Posick uh, to to eventually win that job, which makes it sound like, you know, Fuller is is ahead of him. And I guess that makes sense just because, you know, Posick missed so much time at also, I would say that Ethan Posick did not, I think, garner a whole lot of trust with his play and along with the rest of the play on the interior offensive line down the stretch. Yeah, it's so... I'll raise my hand and say one of the things that I'm unclear on is how Seattle feels about Posick. Because he's a second-round pick, which is a very high choice for an offensive lineman, especially one who primarily played center. He was drafted when Tom Cable was here and was promptly, as Cable has wanted to move, oh, you played center when you were best in college. Why don't we move you somewhere else? Why don't Why don't we have you play somewhere else? He was injured, but when he did play, was not overly impressive in his first three seasons. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I remember him in Houston. Uh, oh, last, me, sorry, year, last year he looked good. Right. Last year, Posick looks really good for the first half of the season. Down the stretch is where everything shifted a little bit. And that's where it gets a little unclear to me because, and maybe it's maybe we just need to lean more on Ray Roberts. I feel like offensive line is where people decide something where I'm like, hold up, when was that decision? Like where it was like, Ethan Posick had problems down the stretch and pass protection and that was a big issue. I'm like, wait, when... When did that happen? It's like, a, when did that? Why do we? Why do we think it was him and not Mike Upati or not Damian it's Lewis? It's a generalization, right? Because we're looking at the interior of the offensive line. Right. And you think to yourself, well, one of those guys was probably screwed exactly. Up. And then it was like, and Posick stunk before, so he probably stinks now. That he becomes a free agent, he doesn't get a lot of interest, but Seattle brings him back. Seattle, Seattle did not bring him back at a contract that makes you say they believe he's their center for years to come. 
but they paid him enough that they think he's capable of doing the job. So I can't tell. So I'm raising my... I believe Brady's right. I think Kyle Fuller is going to start the season at center. I don't know if that's a good thing or a flashing light that this is a potential problem on that offensive line. I think that it just stands to reason that a guy who has been on four teams... I mean, I remember... Fuller, when he was drafted in Houston, was there for a couple of years behind Nick Martin, their center, who they really liked. Who I don't know, I don't know was that good? And he ends up getting shipped off elsewhere. If, if this guy is someone that at times earlier in camp supposedly had, and this was for, I believe, Greg Bell, a, a pretty good grip on that starting center gig, I, I, I don't know what would have changed between then and now if we're not seeing Ethan Posick out there at all. And it might not be the worst thing in the world. I mean, we've seen the Seahawks go to their backup center before not too long ago. I know Joey Hunt was a little undersized and and was pushed back a lot. Oh, little Joey Hunt. But was it a massive drop-off from Justin Britt when Joey Hunt came in? It was a drop. I don't don't think it was a big one. That's the one position where I feel like you can get away with holding things together with duct tape and rubber bands and such. Well, usually you have... Another 300-pounder. He's flanked by the two strongest guys on the line, right? Right. So you should be able to provide some help in most cases. That said, Joey Hunt was pretty good, but there were three plays every game in which the opposing defensive tackle would pick him up as if he were a suitcase and just fling him. Right. He's like bigger Travis Homer. That just got ragged. No, Travis Homer was a good pass protector. (laughs) I never saw... Question two. <laughs> Boom, roasted. All right. So at Sam linebacker, we believe it's Daryl Taylor. But if KJ Wright were to be brought in, he's still available. Maybe KJ Wright gets slid back in. Brady Henderson of ESPN weighed in on what he's seen out of Daryl Taylor thus far. You know, he, he's definitely not stood out to me really in, in the preseason. And, I, and I'm kind of wondering. Um, is that just a matter of him having to knock off rust because he didn't play last year, uh, hasn't played since, what was it, uh, December of 2019 because he missed his rookie season with that leg injury, um, or whether it's something you know more troubling. And not only has he not played in a year, he's also playing a new position. When I hear that, I don't like it, but at the same time, it's someone else confirming something that I thought I was seeing, but everyone else seemed to be like, oh, yeah, Daryl Taylor. Daryl Taylor looks fast. But I do think that he is still figuring things out, and I don't think he's really jumped off the screen at all. So I I am with Brady from the perspective of it might not be the worst idea in the world to think about bringing KJ right now. And I think the real question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to move in the direction of the younger player and give the younger player playing time? Because if you do then you sort of have to suck it up, let KJ go elsewhere, and hope that Taylor improves with experience over the course of a 17-game season. Are you at a point where you can trust young players to develop, where you want to do that this season? Shouldn't because you? I can see... Well, I don't know. If, if you think KJ Wright's better than Daryl Taylor right now, why don't you have KJ Wright here? I mean, honestly, and and that's because the flip side is to say, well, Daryl Taylor will learn on the job, and the the second half of the season he'll be better than what you'd have for KJ Wright. Like that would be the argument that you would make. 
here's, and this is how I've always felt about Daryl Taylor, is you drafted him to be a defensive end. You drafted him knowing he was hurt. It was unfortunate that that injury lingered and kept him sidelined throughout his entire first season. But at this point, your decision has to be made based on what he's doing, not what could have been. Your decision has to be based on what you're seeing. He's had an injury that's kept him sidelined for an entire year, and he's playing a new position. And I don't know how much, how far I'm willing to go down the road of, well, he'll figure it out, and he's young, so the upside is there, as much as, dude, this guy's got to play his way onto the field. I know he's a second-round pick, and I know you put a lot, but that was a while ago. And... Honestly, if I think that K.J. Wright is a better player, that it's not a push, I'm real tempted to bring in K.J. Wright to play that from the get-go because you're not in a rebuilding situation here. He had the best season of his career last year. Period. End of story. So, you want to go in the direction of Daryl Taylor, fine, but he better be awesome. And I don't know that that's going to happen. It seems like... He and Rasheem Green have switched spots a couple times, but I can't tell if that's just Green going out of a different stance. I, I've seen the same thing before, and when Alden Smith was in, too, I, I, I had seen a little bit of movement like that, and I've also seen it with Benson Mayo, too. So I, I'm the same way. I'm not sure if it's them like flipping the formation or if it's actually it's, some movement. It's weird, right? Because it's not just about stance. Like Just because you line up with in a two-point stance doesn't mean you're, 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 you're a linebacker. And not a defensive end, but Green has definitely done that the last time. So we're like, wait a minute, is he playing same? And I don't think he is. I think yeah. he's still at that rush it, end. It's and some people call it their bear front, where it's you're, you're basically having, even though one of the guys is the strong side linebacker, it's like five defensive linemen. So it's, is this it's, people on the internet calling it, it the is. bear front? Yes, it is. It's people on the internet call. Oh, that's what they call it on the internet, the bear front. They actually call it the uh, Kraken front. Dave Wyman's not going to like this. <laughs> no. The wolf front. I just love it when you could see where they're in the bear front here. I was like, who's calling it that? I want to say fancy lingo and sound smart. Come on, you, Danny. You tape room McGee. <laughs> it's the chupacabra Question. front. Question. All right. Cornerback is the great uncertainty on this team right now. Like We've talked about strong side linebacker, which is maybe an issue if you squint hard enough. Center, which is uncertain, but that's largely because of injury. Anybody have any idea what the heck's going on at corner? Ken Norton, Ken Norton, can you shed some light on what you guys are going to do at cornerback? DJ just came back, you know, from his injury. You know, Trey's been having a fantastic camp. He's been really doing some really good things. Um, uh, Witherspoon is uh, a guy that's been making plays. He had a really good day yesterday. He's been having a really good camp. Preseason has been uh, fair. But at the same time, I think a lot of guys – the competition is still out there. I, I don't think any decision has been made, but at the same time, we have some really good players uh, to choose from. Unhelpful, Ken. Nope. Unhelpful. You did say Akella Weatherspoon had a nice day, but we could say that about a lot of the corners. We could say that about Trey He just Trey read Flowers. a bunch of names. He did. He did. And, and Including the fact that he called a guy Trey, and I'm like, hey, that doesn't narrow it down. There are two of those dudes among your cornerbacks. There's a Flowers and a Brown. Well, he's taking things out of the Russell Wilson playbook of, I'm going to filibuster by saying as many names as I possibly can think of off the top of my head. Schottenheimer liked to do that last year, too. That's a good call, yeah. that. <laughs> you know... Uh, what I, the heck, what, what, what's going on? What are we going to see week one? I, I still don't know. I, Come on! Fine. What I want to see happen is I want it to be DJ Reed and Trey Brown. That's what I want. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of it, upside it, with Trey Brown. It, with Brown, it's a knee, though, right? Yep. 
And that's concerning because what yeah. did we deal with last year? It was Quinton Dunbar in a knee. Okay. Or a lack thereof. It's going to be DJ Reed, right? Right. Yep. Reed's yes. practicing. He'll have enough time. He's he's going to play outside there. On the other side, I think it's going to be Witherspoon. I don't think they're going to go with a rookie. And but what about Trey Flowers? I mean, they like— No, Flow- Flowers is playing on the other side with Reed. Uh, I'm, I'm done yeah. hearing about that. Are we going to ha- have more of the Trey Flowers thing? I think Haven't I already sold that like three times? Got to make flowers today. <laughs> Look, I, I hope that Trey Flowers is a really key special teams uh, contributor, and if he's called upon, I hope we do see it. But I, I'm going to give some other guys a shot first. I want to see some other guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Like, I mean, he's not playing he on the same side as Reed, right? Yeah, it's 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 Flowers or Reed, and it's Witherspoon or Brown. I think out of those two, I think we're going to end up seeing Reed and Witherspoon. What about Demarius one. Randall? Pete Carroll talked about it. <laughs> he seems to have some weird obsession with Randall because like, Randall was good a couple of years ago, sort of like Pierre Desir was good a couple of years ago. But Pierre Desir is was, with us was no Randall more. play Randall was playing safety though, right? He did play corner for a little bit though, and I think he had one season that is where he was not, good. That is not the direction guys go later in their career. They don't usually move to the outside. Usually, you move to the inside of the field because you don't get faster as you get older. Unless you go to like Germany and, and you're LeBron James, get so. blood spinning operations done, <laughs> little Regenekine. Yeah, I'm 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 I'm, I'm out on Demarius Randall until I see that happen. That that to me sounds like one of those names they're just saying because they they'd like to see it happen. Saying all the names, it's a concern. It really is. I'm I am less optimistic than I was when they first brought in Witherspoon this offseason, and especially because it, it is almost entirely reliant on an undersized corner to be healthy for 17 games. And DJ Reed, it's not like he hasn't had injury issues before. I mean, that's the reason that San Francisco. Let him go last year. They put him on waivers hoping to st- be able to bring him back and stash him. Our training camp coverage presented by Precore Home Fitness. That is Blue 42. Michael Bumpus will be with us tomorrow in the 8 o'clock hour. Don't forget, tomorrow night is sing-along fireworks night. Just a fun Friday night at T-Mobile Park watching great baseball. Find tickets at Mariners.com. Seattle opens its homestand against the Kansas City Royals tonight. They were off yesterday but got a solid from the Minnesota Twins who blew a lead in the ninth inning then won the game in the 11th. Royals had a 16-inning uh, catastrophe down between the Dodgers and the Padres, right? Won by an A.J. Pollock two-run homer late. That game got done after midnight. Yeah. Oof. We got to stay up that late. <laughs> two and a half games the Mariners are. Two and a half games out of the wild card spot they're a game behind the a's the a's now play the yankees so that one of the benefits of being in a a five-team chase for two spots is there are going to be times where two of those teams that you're racing with play each other which you know that you're going to get opportunity to make up ground on one of them like you know and that's that's what there are a lot of downsides to it in that hey you don't it's not just one team you have to outpace like you've got to outkick three different teams here as you as you go down the stretch run. But one of the advantages is there's going to be a little bit of cannibalism that happens among those other contenders. The Mariners, they've got the Royals. And I, I, I hate, for a number of reasons, I hate lining it up as like, this is a series that should lead to your advantage. Because the Royals were just really competitive with the, with the Astros. Yeah, they've been honest, good of late. They've, over the last yeah. couple of weeks, too, it's, it's not just a one-series thing. They, they, they and also um, Detroit, a couple of other teams that are, are still on... Out there, they're they're not playing poorly. Even though earlier in the year, you look at them and say, "Oh goodness gracious, this this team stinks." This should be a boost, though, because we've seen this team gradually build momentum. 
Like we've we've seen series at home when the crowd has gotten behind them, and there's there there seems to be. I've I've gotten the sense that there's more buy-in locally that home field should be a bigger advantage. Now we'll see what the uh, what the crowds are like. Is it south of France night tonight, and then you're gonna have the fireworks night? And we got the Funko Moose Pop that's given away. No. Funko the pop. Mariner Moose Funko Pop yeah. that is being given away on Saturday. That's a matinee game that'll be uh, at one o'clock against the Royals. I- I'm hoping I'm hoping that they get a big boost from coming back home. Oh, no doubt. I-, I I do too. Though I do think it'll be a bit a different environment. I mean, it's the Royals. The Royals aren't a draw. So I I, I feel this is going to be one of those series where yeah, def- there will definitely be people there, and people are excited about the team. It's still it's the Royals. You know, um, you mentioned that cannibalism. It is really ideal that. Both t- divisions that are really involved in the wild card race—it's it's two divisions as opposed to three. Because the AL Central just being garbage—that that that means that cannibalism that you talked about is possible. Where you know it's not just New York and Boston. It's not as if Tampa Bay is is completely out of the woods just yet, though. A four and a half game lead in the AL East is is a pretty commanding one. But also you have Oakland and Houston, where with the way that Houston's been playing recently. They haven't been killing it. You know, obviously mm-hmm. they smashed the Mariners around, but they have been in this weird kind of spot where I think you look at them and you're wondering just how long is it going to be until they can turn on the Jets the same way that New York has. Hmm. See, I, I think there's ebbs and flows this time of year. And I, I know that the Yankees are going to come back to the pack. I, I know that the Yankees are going to slow down. Maybe maybe that starts this weekend series against the A's. Uh, you know, in, I in don't know though, man. Taking... I I really think that it's it's Houston and New York to me are the best two teams in the American League, just top to bottom, talent wise. And I I really think they're in a separate class. Why do you think that? I think it because I feel like it's been the case basically for the last four years. What? No, nah, man. But you look at the Yankees. That Yankees team has some issues, man. Their bullpens. Their bullpens a flaming dumpster. Like, Chapman is not the same. If you're going to put together your list of people uh, uh, affected by spider tack or the change in grip substance, you look at Chapman's not good. And then they've got uh, Loisaga, L- L- who everybody calls lasagna. And he, he does, like, he serves up some meat pies. Like, their, their bullpen is an issue for I, them. I agree. It's not as dominant as it used to be. But I also think by that same, by that same notion, as they get more and more used to pitching with spider tag, there's probably a chance that there could be a, a, a resurgence from some of these guys in that bullpen. And, I mean, even if it is something that can go away really quickly when it comes to relievers and the kind of dominance that they might be able to have, it's also something that I would imagine is possible to come back just given some of the names that are in that bullpen. So that's interesting. So you think the Astros and Yankees are the, are the class. Who do you think the Mariners are chasing then? Because the, the White Sox are out of the conversation. You're right. It's not going to be a team from the AL Central. Who who are the Mariners going to have to – who's going to be their toughest competition for the wild card? I, I, I think that it, it's it's probably – and look, Toronto is is not that close to um, the top of the wild card rankings. I think Tor- the, Toronto's what, a game and a half back of you? Yeah. Back of the Mariners? They, they only have 66 wins right now. So, I mean, that's another team that you throw into this and this giant um, puzzle, this Jenga piece. Um Boston, I think, is is probably the one that you're looking at right now, and, and you have to outpace Boston because it looks like Oakland's falling apart, and they might. Not. You have to. Pa- I would say you have to pass Oakland. Yes, no I don't doubt. see. I don't. I don't see a scenario where the two teams that get the wild cards are AL West teams. I think you absolutely have to pass Oakland. I think you're going to end up having to stay in front of Toronto and chase down the Yankees. 
I think Boston is going to rebound from their rough stretch of games. And maybe the bottom really has fallen out because it certainly, since the trade deadline, they've had a lot of problems. I, I think it's going to be, I think you're going to end up having to catch the Yankees. If you pass the Yankees and the A's, you're going to make the playoffs. Yeah, or or it's the Yan- it's it's the A's in Boston too. I, I, I wonder if New York can keep up and keep on going up and, and, and catch even Tampa Bay. But the, the way that they're playing right now, I, I think they are definitely going to be one of those wild card teams. Of course, there's a lot of season left. That series that that the Mariners have the 13th through fifth through 15th against Boston. I mean, that might be the most important series of the year. And I know obviously they've got a couple of different series against Houston. You could add them all up together in the last couple of series against the A's and say, okay, well, yeah, these are these are obviously important too. But that one is that one is almost one that I look at and, and I think you you might have to sweep it, you know, to to really make sure that Boston is not in a spot where they're significantly ahead of you. I feel like the schedule shapes up really well for the Mariners in this sense. That the difficult teams they have to play are the teams that they're chasing down or competing with. Like they don't have games left with the White Sox, right? Right. Like they don't they don't have games left with the Tampa Bay Rays. The teams that they're going to be playing are the teams that they have more games left against the A's, who I think are a much a much seven more as opposed to the to the Astros. Six. The teams the good teams that they're going to play are the teams, and I think as a baseball team, that's what you always want. What you always want is, okay, I get an opportunity to knock off the team that I need to catch. Like, I control, I control that destiny most in my hands. I think that the schedule, and because that Boston series, I believe, is sandwiched right around, there's two series against the A's, and then that, there's that series against Boston that are all kind of in that final three weeks of September. I think it shapes up really well for them because of that. I, I agree. And look, I, I don't know if the Royals are a layup, but you have two series against Arizona, who's not good. You have two series against LA, uh, the Angels, who aren't very good either. So, I mean, assuming that you can win for the most part, I would say the majority of those series. Yeah, and look, the thing that you do also have working for you too is all of a sudden in this second half of the year, you're playing Oakland and Houston a ton. So there's a little bit more familiarity there. So that should, even if Houston's way ahead of you and... Oakland, you could make the argument, is, is, is a better team based off of a lot of different numbers. That familiarity evens things out a little bit, especially if you're seeing the same guys over and over and over again, at least in principle. It's Danny and Gallant, Jerry DePoto, Mariners general manager. He's going to make his weekly visit with us. That comes up next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. I was realizing last night that I have taken to seeing the baseball season now as a horse race. And usually they'll use that term in political journalism as sort of a description of the the, the, pres, the presidential race. of Everything is viewed toward which, which party's candidate is going to win. Here there are five teams. There are five different entrances. What has happened up until now? will not matter nearly as much as what happens going forward. Like, we're getting to the point where all of these different things that we spent so much time talking about, run differential, mm-hmm. and, and all, all of these different... Like, like, seriously, but all of those different statistical indicators, because those stats are useful for telling you what has happened and providing you guidance for what is most likely to occur. But there's a limit to how much they can predict the outcome of a game because a game is hundreds, if not thousands, of incremental decisions and execution. 
we're getting very close to the point where how the Mariners got here does not matter nearly as much as whether or not they can pull it off for another 30 days. That, that record that they have, what, they're 12-4 and four in extra innings games. Like, that's, that's a sign that a team is, has been fortunate, at the very least. And that's going to matter less and less the closer we get to the end of the season because there's a limited number of games, and it just depends on how you execute in those. And while statistics provide a, a bear guide, it, it, the, the ability to predict what will happen lessens with the, the fewer games you have left. Is the most important statistic that the Mariners are 12-1 and one when they wear teal? <laughs> I think that it got, is. That got me, Paul. That got me. I was completely leading off balance, and he got me with a knee-buckling curve pow, there. Pow, pow, pow. Yes, yes, it makes as much sense as anything else that the Mariners 12-1 and one in their teal jerseys. And what we welcome Looks Jerry Depoto each into each and every week is to talk about fashion. No, we're not going to ask about teal jerseys. Well, kind of Jerry... Welcome aboard. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm now having illusions of, of teal jerseys dancing through my head. Please. Why aren't we wearing these every day? I <laughs> they, didn't realize that. <laughs> Jerry, they look so good, but they're 12-1 and one when they wear them. This is a ridiculous anomaly in a season that there has been so many inexplicable things taking place. You know, they said we had this back in 2016 uh, when we got on a really good run in midsummer. We had it with our, with our blue jerseys where it, it – we were running some crazy win percentage with blue jerseys on. And, you know, it helped that Hisashi Wakuma preferred the blue jersey and, and chose it most of his starts and was in the midst of a really good run. But I, I, I usually don't track things like that, but I will now. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, I, I was just saying that this is the time of year where I start to feel that it's more like a horse race where – what had happened the previous few months and all of the different statistical trends that we spend so much time looking at become less important because it's a, it's just a matter of which team is going to execute and play the best baseball over this final month, uh, final five, six weeks of the season. It's a really fun time of year. It really is. You know, it, one of the things that we talk about frequently is the fact that, you know, while we can get as analytical as any of the other 29 teams, and, and, and we all do it, we can sit and we can inspect how things happen, why they happen. Is this for the, the reality is that the wins that we have achieved to this point in the season are banked. They're in the bank, and and what we have moving forward is is roughly five weeks to see if we can catch up or, or overtake the the leaders. And we've put ourselves in a position to make it a really exciting you know month plus here in Seattle. We've been talking about some of the guys who have been essentially the metronome for the Mariners this season and on the batting side of things it's been Ty France for the most part this year Chris Flexen coming off of another important start has also been that from what you saw of him when he was pitching in Korea to where he's at now what has been the most I guess impressive improvement or element of his game there, for, I will go back even a little bit further to the, his final stint with the Mets in their system and and some of the ways that Flex has kind of remade himself. Uh, the, he he reshaped a lot of his pitches. He reshaped his body, which was, uh, you know, he will tell you, maybe the biggest step for him is, you know, he lost a good deal of weight. He created, he is a more athletic person than he was uh, maybe before this started. And and his endurance has been terrific. So he got himself in great shape. He showed up in spring training with four 
average to plus major league pitches and a willingness to use them all in every count. And I think one of the things that really stands out with Flex is that he has the courage to throw any of those pitches at any time and and doesn't really allow the hitter to affect the way he's thinking. He, he, reads, he reads swings quite well. And I, I, I've seen him get better. I've seen him get better with his right-on-right changeup. I've seen him get better on the day that he feels he has the good curveball. It becomes a huge weapon for him. On the day he doesn't, he goes to his cutter more often. He's, he adapts, and, and I think that's a sign of a really, well, not just a resilient pitcher, but a consistent pitcher. And, and I think that's what he's been this year is, is our most consistent starter. We're talking to Jerry Depoto here on the Issaquah Pest Control Hotline. If Flexen has been sort of the consistency and what he's done has been a revelation this year, and the bullpen Paul Seawald's been that, what's allowed him to take the step forward that he has? I guess Paul Seawald. Is, uh, if you get to spend time around or just watching Paul like we have this year, has He's a consistent person, and I think that's what jumps out at me. And you know, he likes to compete. He believes in himself. He always had the traits in his pitches, and I, I think getting him, getting him into a, a comfortable arm slot for him, you know, the slight adjustments that he made in his delivery and in his pitch usage patterns, and then simply, you know, the idea of throwing fastballs up instead of always throwing fastballs down. And and then having someone like Paul who could go out there and execute all those things. He, you know, Paul came in to the Mariners and he believed in in us like we believed in him, and there was a trust. and And he's really taken it and run with it. I, he's had a really a season to, for the ages. This is for for setup type relievers in the big leagues. What he's doing with strikeout rates, the frequency with which he's he's doing it is is pretty awesome. Is Kyle Lewis indeed going to start a rehab um, assignment this weekend? And I guess what do you envision his role being should he return to the team this year? Obviously, having suffered uh, a knee injury, maybe that means he's more a designated hitter than an outfielder. We do anticipate that he's going to start a rehab assignment. I can't confirm whether that's yet going to be this weekend until you know a little bit later today when I visit with our training staff. But just having visited with Kyle briefly yesterday, he feels like he's in a good place. And, you know, what I can, uh, I guess, address is what we expect when he comes back is some combination of center fielder, you know, potentially getting a start at another outfield position, could get a day in left and a day or two at DH and bake in off days to make sure that we keep him as, as fresh as possible and not overwhelm him while he's coming back. But, you know, one thing that we're all confident in is that when Kyle steps back out on the field, he has a chance to be an impact player for us, and we want to make sure that he stays out there as as frequently or as consistently as he can without putting him in a position of feeling fatigued and doing something to, to take a step backward physically. Well, the guy that's playing center field now who uh, in the in the last couple games he ended an 0-for-20 slump, uh, Jared Kelnick did on Monday, or the the second game he played in Oakland, and then the game the, the, the next opportunity at the plate, he drove in a couple runs. I believe they were both off left-handers on breaking pitches, which I found myself uh, up out of my seat cheering when he did that on Tuesday because it seems like that will be the next challenge for Jared is being able to hit lefties and specifically breaking pitches from lefties. Well, I mean, heavens knows he he has gotten his fair share of opportunity to see lefty. 
you know, we, we joke in, in, internally. It's, it's been a disproportionately heavy dose of, of, you know, opportunities against lefties and often tough lefties for JK since he's been in the big leagues. And, and, you know, it's not something that, that he had a lot of experience with before coming to the big leagues, but particularly the at bat that he took, you know, at the end of the game on Tuesday against AJ Puck, who frankly I thought was, you know, so some he was nasty and mm-hmm. and JK went up there and stuck with him and and drove in runs with that double and and I I think you know he's he's maturing as a hitter you're always going to get you know a high variance he's he's close to seven years younger than the average player in our league which is I, I think sometimes gets lost in the in the in the context of things he's extremely talented and and when he starts to click and feels that confidence and his body posture stays easy. He's a very good hitter now, and, and we see that. And, and you know, it's been more intermittent than consistent. But at some point, you're going to see that take shape and, and hold. And, and I really do think that he has the potential to be an impact player once he figures out how to manage that consistently. And and he he eventually will because he's driven to do it. I'm writing down that you just referred to him as J.K. for myself going forward, Jerry. One last question for me. Are there any perhaps celebrations in order for, I don't know, promotions for you, contract extensions for you? Because it is something we're all curious about because, man, this team has done an incredible job this year. And both you and, and, and Scott Service, I think, are a big part of all of this. Well, I did there first we celebrate everything. <laughs> and you know, sometimes we're criticized. We are we are a celebratory group. So uh, you know, there's I will say this that I and I've addressed this when asked before. I'm very confident in, in what's happening here with the Mariners, and I know our owners are as well. And, you know, we've talked about this intermittently for quite some time now, and, and I'm certain that we're going to get something worked out that, that keeps all of us here in Seattle for, for the future. And, and, and that's an important step for us. And, and, and you know, I, I will celebrate when that time comes because it's every small victory is, a, is something that you should celebrate. Well, all the small victories are adding up to being a really, really exciting end of August and into September. Jerry, we're always grateful for the time, and, and we're looking forward to starting with tonight's game uh, against the Royals south of France night. I hope uh-huh. that you get your baguette, you settle into the press box, or, and, or, or wherever you watch this game from, because it should be, it should be the start of a really exciting stretch run. I, I wish there was some pastry involved, but I, I, I will <laughs> somehow I will conjure something to remind myself that I need to be in it. I will drop this as I, as I leave. I cannot say enough about what Ty France has done in the second half of this season. And, and it, he has been a rock in our lineup and I, I, he should be celebrated tonight. And I think it's fun that we're doing something in the ballpark that gets the fans engaged and, and really appreciating Ty. Jerry, thank you so much. We'll look forward to yeah, talking see. to you next week. All right, guys, we'll see you. It is Danny and Gallant interview extravaganza continues I believe we've got D. Eskridge lined up, Seahawks slot receiver. He's going to join us next here. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. We're flipping back over to Seahawks training camp. Our coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. We've got with us now, joining us from, from the practice facility, is D. Eskridge, Seattle's rookie receiver. We're just getting to know him. But I, I, I'm willing to bet that there, it's not been harder for anyone these first couple weeks of training camp 
than than our guest D, who had to watch and wait until he was activated to begin practicing. I'm I'm gonna bet those first couple weeks of watching wasn't easy for you. Yeah, it definitely wasn't. Um, but getting that getting that view from the outside, you know, in a sense, it helped me in the long run. Um, now that I'm back back actually practicing. How jealous is the rest of the roster that you're coming into the NFL and you get to sport number one right out of the gate? Yeah, it's crazy. It's a blessing, really, because um, I had my mind totally set on getting a terrible number when I got drafted. It was something that I kind of wanted and welcomed <laughs> in. Um, but then being able to get number one, it's a blessing, pure blessing. Not only that, but I think veterans, like Quandre Diggs, who he's wearing six this year, like Carlos Dunlap is wearing eight. I think those dudes to switch numbers had to had to buy out their old jersey. I think they have to pay some cash to be able to switch jerseys. You get you get a fresh start. Like it's, it's the first number you wore straight out of the shoot. You're the first number one wide receiver in, in Seahawks history. Oh yeah. Marked it down. <laughs> D, what's working out with Russell Wilson? We've heard that that you started one of the ways to kind of make up for or compensate for the fact that you weren't cleared to, to begin working out during practice was you were meeting with Russ earlier. H- how has that helped you acclimate to, to the new team? Yeah, it's helped me tremendously. Um, there, there aren't many leaders like Russ that I've ever met in my life. You know, and I, I call myself a leader. I am a leader. Um, but, you know, he takes it to a whole another level um, of actually getting everyone around him better. You know, and then with me, I'm a direct recipient of that um we come in early mornings um we talk about stuff we put we visualize things you know it's being a young guy having an older guy to help me like that you know it's nothing short of a blessing i read that you're not a morning person has there been a trick to getting up early we along with you also are guys who have to get up early yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say I'm not a morning person, you know, because I, the football, the football world is turned. I can't sleep past seven anyway. Um, but the fives, they're, they're definitely harder than the sevens. Um, but you know, it, I welcome it in. You know, just get up, give myself like five minute grace, and then just get up, go about my day. Don't think about it. The voice is D. Eskridge, your Seahawks rookie receiver. We don't spend enough time, I don't think, talking about the kind of balls that quarterbacks throw, the kind of passes. What's what's what is the kind of ball that Russ throws? Um, it's a pretty throw. That's about the best way I can explain it. You know, he he looks good throwing it. You know, and then the like the 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 amount of air he puts under it gets into just the perfect spot to where we can only catch it. And then especially coming over the middle, he protects us a lot. So it's it's amazing, honestly. You know, I obviously I haven't been around a quarterback like Russ, but going out there and catching passes from is is great. Watching as an observer, the trajectory, the air that Russ puts under his deep throws has always stood out to me. What does that do for a receiver like you, and especially someone whose strength is their, is, is their speed? Is, is that an advantage, having a quarterback that can loft a pass like that? Yeah, definitely. It, it allows me to run, um, just beat the corner, and then set, set my landmark, and then just run. And then that's, that's pretty much the only thing I have to worry about other than the catch point because um, Russ, he's going to put it where I need it to be. Um, and all I got to do is do what I do. You've done a lot of different things over the course of your football career. I know you played some running back in, in high school, and you were on the outside at wide receiver returning kicks and stuff in college. And I'd imagine now that you're getting some opportunities to be a slot receiver. Michael Bumpus, who, who played for the Seahawks, was talking about how it, it isn't easy to transition from being an outside wide receiver to a slot receiver. Have you faced any of those challenges, and what's been the biggest thing, the most difficult thing for you to pick up? 
Um, yeah, it, it's definitely been a transition. Um, but I, I kind of feel like that that's who I am, really, because ever since I've gotten out of high school, I've played about <laughs> four or five different positions ever since then. So it's always a process. Um, so I don't I don't really take it too hard. I just try to um, take in the information because that's the hardest part right now is it's, it's so much information um, being in the NFL, being in this offense that, you know, we have to know. We almost have to be a quarterback um, in the slot and on the outside because I'm doing both of those. Um, so it's, it, it has its difficulties, but, you know, it's working well. Like I said, because Russ, he's, you know, he, he won't allow me to fail. So, you know, everything that I do, you know, he's always encouraging and always is, you know, making me, making me better on a daily basis. It was so exciting to hear the crowd back at Lumen Field on Saturday. I mean, it's been a year since we've, we've heard the crowd. I would imagine for you, it's your first home game there. Um, regardless of, of crowd or presence. And I don't know if you're going to play in this weekend's preseason finale or not, but have you have you allowed yourself to daydream or think about what it's going to be like when the season starts for real and you get out there with, with a sold-out crowd as loud as this place can get? Have, have you allowed yourself to think about what that might feel like? Plenty of times. And honestly, most of those times come when I wake up at 5 a.m., 5.15 a.m., you know, just laying back, got like, got my five, ten minute grace, grace period. You know, I just lay back and think about, you know, the things that are actually coming forth. Uh, walking out there, saying my prayer, and then it actually being in Lumen Field. You know, everything is actually real. A lot of things haven't felt too real just because I've been injured a lot. But when that day comes, everything is going to be real for sure. Well, it's coming sooner than any of us could expect. I know it probably seems a long way off. D, it's really great to talk to you. We're excited to watch you. And and thanks for the time this morning. It's been really great to talk to you. Yes, sir. Thank you guys for having me. That is D. Eskridge, your Seahawks rookie receiver. We're going to be going back out to Seahawks training camp. That's going to be in, well, about 25 minutes from now. We'll talk to Gerald Everett, who is a tight end for the Seahawks. But up next, we're going around the NFL on Danny and Gallant.